This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, the podcast that introduces you to the rich world of storytellers who share their personal journeys, creative processes, and the stories behind their stories, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and I'm thrilled to be part of your writing journey. If you're an aspiring writer, a literary enthusiast, or simply someone who believes in the transformative power of words, you've come to the right place. Every week, we'll pop the cork on the world of successful storytellers and give you a healthy pour of inspiration, insight, and empowerment. My mission is to help writers like you realize your full potential through the transformative and therapeutic power of writing. Whether you're just starting your literary voyage or looking to refine your craft, I'm here to provide you with the knowledge, inspiration, and encouragement you need to embark on your own storytelling adventure. So, are you ready to uncork your story and let your creativity flow? Uncorking a story is about to begin. Sit back, relax, and let the transformative magic of storytelling whisk you away. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Well, hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Uncorking a Story. I'm Mike Carlin, and I'm so happy to have you with me as I uncork Diane Gelman's story. I also want to remind you to please follow Uncorking a Story on all social media platforms, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. You can find us at Uncorking a Story on all of those platforms. A quick note on YouTube, that has been a platform that not only has given uh, the show some tremendous growth, but it's become a very fun way for me to interact with all of you. So I get to interact with the audience and, and also the audience, uh, my fans get to interact with each other. And I'm always curious to see their comments on our various episodes. And I'm sure today's conversation will garner more than just a few. So please go to YouTube and search for Uncorking a Story. Hit that subscribe button so you can stay in the know with all of the great episodes we have coming up for you. Now, listen, if you're an audio listener, please subscribe, rate, and review Uncorking a Story wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's talk about Diane Gilman. This was... An amazing conversation, I have to say. Um, you know, from from dressing rock stars to moving to New York without a safety net to designing a product that solved a problem for you know millions of women worldwide to battling cancer, Diane Gilman has had quite quite a ride in her life. And one thing in this conversation really stood out to me: she was basically shunned by her family by, you know, for, for not following the path that they expected her to follow. And namely, that was to marry uh, a nice Jewish doctor and become a housewife and mother, like her cousin. And you'll hear that story uh, as we go through this conversation. Um, but pardon uh, the following pun, but it just wasn't in her genes to do something like that. You know, she told me in the course of our conversation that, you know, she from, from a very young age, you know, from, from two years old or whenever she could hold a crayon, she was drawing and designing and felt a calling to fashion. And she knew she wanted to be a fashion designer when she grew up. 
but she had to make a choice between fashion and her family. And that's a tough choice. It's a tough choice for anyone to make. Um, but she made it and she chose fashion. Fashion won out. And uh, millions of people worldwide are, are very fortunate that it did. Um, now, you might be asking yourself, hey, Mike, you run a podcast with authors. What's the lesson here for me as an author or as an aspiring author? Well, I'll tell you. If you have a dream to write a book, and, and chances are for some of you out there, you know, you don't have the support, you need to stay motivated. You know, I know what that's like. You know, maybe there's someone in your life who you respect who said to you things like, you know, the odds are not in your favor. Yeah, there's a little quote there from uh, The Hunger Games. Um, they might say, you know, there's too many authors out there. Or have you seen how many books are for sale on Amazon? Have you seen the bookstores? You know, you can't do that. You aren't good enough to write a book. Well, I'm here to tell you, don't listen to those people. You know, if you feel that deep down inside that writing is something that you should be doing, that you want to be doing, if that's if that's what your soul wants to do, don't let those powers, I'm sorry, don't let those voices overpower your spirit. You know, just do it. Be persistent about it. Don't expect to be successful out of the gate. You know, Diane had her greatest successes at, at age 60 and after. But keep on going. You know, not everybody's going to be in your corner when you try something as daunting as writing a book. But remember, you don't need everyone in your corner. You know, you just need a few select people, you know, a couple people to believe in you. You know, you need somebody. So look for writing groups, you know, meet some other authors, find like minded people who can help build you up and give you honest feedback. You know, you're not looking for people who are just going to tell you that uh, your writing is all sunshine and roses. You know, you need honest feedback. But it's a myth that writing is a total, totally solitary process. You know, it can be. Um, but, but the best writers I know, you know, take a very collaborative approach to writing, especially, you know, when working with an editor towards the end of the process. Um, and some I know are, are, you know, leaving a couple of breadcrumbs of ideas, uh, you know, asking people to, to look at something early on. And there's a danger in doing that. But, um, you know, the, the, the point is it's, it doesn't necessarily have to be a solitary process, you know, find people in your corner, find people who are going to help motivate you and push you to keep going and push you to be better. So keep at it, but you don't have to take my word for it. You can listen to this inspiring conversation with Diane Gilman. And if you're not a believer, you know, of the power of persistence by the end of this conversation, I'm going to ask that you listen to it again, because chances are you must have missed something. But seriously, if you do listen twice, that's great because it definitely helps my ratings. Um, without further interruptions from me, we're going to uncork Diane Gilman's story. Happy listening. Diane Gilman found her greatest success at age 60 when she sparked a denim revolution, designing blue jeans for real women with real bodies. She sold nearly 19 million pairs of her DG2 jeans on HSN and created a sisterhood of 700,000 women who feel too young to be old. She joins me today to talk about her memoir, Too Young to Be Old, How to Stay Vibrant, Visible, and Forever in Blue Jeans, 25 Secrets from TV's Jean Queen. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Diane. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. Well, Diane, I am happy to have you here. I'm excited to, to talk to you and get to know you. And I'm going to ask you the question I ask all of my guests to start, which is, where does your story begin? Yeah, I think my story begins um, when I was about two and a half, three years old. And uh, I remember sitting in my bedroom. I grew up uh, for the first nine years in L.A., in Home Beach Hills, and picking up a crayon 
and drawing a triangle stick figure with way B hair, which was me, and then putting in a dress and popping on polka dots. And from the time I was a little girl, I was obsessed with fashion. Yeah. So you were you you like my daughter. So I have I have triplets, um, two girls and a boy. And one of one of the girls, ever since she could hold a crayon, she's been drawing and she's been into fashion. She's actually graduating with a degree in uh, fashion merchandising and marketing in May. Um, but yeah, that, I, I just love that 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 notion of you as a little girl holding and drawing. And but what, what do you think about fashion? What, like, why did that speak to your soul so much? I think um, I personally believe in karma. I believe in past lives, and I think this was just my lifetime to do this because nobody else in my family, even extended family, was an artist. Nobody else in my family, with that including my parents too, thought a woman should work or even have thoughts like that. Like, that was weird. And, you know, it even extended when I would get a doll as a present for Christmas. I never wanted to play with baby dolls. I wanted to design clothes for them. And I used to do it for my little friends, too. They'd all be walking around with these baby dolls. And I thought, that's so stupid. You're walking around with a rubber doll talking to it. But then I would say, give me the doll for like two days. And I would cut out. Maybe my mother would have linen towels or something that she didn't want to use anymore. And I would cut and I would sew and I would draw little designs on the dress and then give it back to my friends. So it was a calling. It was an obsession. It was a determination that from a very young age, I was not going to follow the norm because I was born the year, the day after World War II ended in 1945. Women didn't work. If, if you really think about it, there were no women as major designers, it was and apart from Coco Chanel. And by the way, Coco Chanel had her biggest success at the age of 72 when she designed the Chanel suit. So I didn't feel quite so lonely at 60 having my fashion light bulb moment. But women were not supposed to do this. They were not in the fashion industry. It was men. It was Givenchy and Dior and... Maybe if you were lucky as a woman, you were a seamstress for a couturier. But um, way before it was possible, that was my dream, my dream, my dream. So one day, I must have been about five years old. We're in a market. They didn't have supermarkets back then. And we get, we're waiting in line and magazine wrapped is by the line. And there's 17 magazine. And it's this model, Coraline Copy, teenage model in New York Avenue for the weekend. So she's wearing this mink coat because it was okay to wear animals at the time. And I remember pulling on my mother and saying, you see that? See her? That's going to be me. Only I'm not going to be a model. 
I'm going to be a fashion designer. I'm going to live on Fifth Avenue by the Empire State Building. And I'm going to have that fur coat, that mink coat. And that's good. And everyone's going to know me for design and clothing. My mother's like, uh, yeah. Well, you know, I live on Fifth Avenue. I can see the Empire State Building. And I don't wear mink anymore, but I did. So it's very, it's just amazing to me to look back on my life, see that I recognized what I wanted and where I wanted to be at a very young age. And my family was just hysterical. No, 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 no. And and despite all that, you were able to manifest it. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you're mentioning, you know, women, if they're lucky, they could be a seamstress. Um, my my grandmother was an Italian immigrant who was a seamstress in New York City and, um, you know, worked with Oleg Cassini and a lot of her. Oh, and she wanted- I was just in Oleg Cassini's home oh. in New York. It's like a castle. It was like they just sold it. But uh, oh, amazing. Oh, my God. That guy was the first guy to be able to figure out, to build it up and then license your name to everything. Now, he was brilliant. Yeah, I mean, certainly. And the, the, the way my family tells a story is that my grandmother taught him everything he knew. But <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how much truth uh, there is to that. But she was a very talented uh, seamstress and, and as well as designer. Um, you know, you mentioned something when we were talking before about uh, dressing rock stars. So what can you tell me about that part of your life? Well, you know, it, this is so interesting. But um, I went to UCLA, even though I didn't want to because I had no fashion curriculum. And I made a friend in this woman. And who was her boyfriend? Jim Morrison. The Doors. Okay, so <laughs> that starts it. Then I get a boyfriend. Who wants to be a record producer? But we're young, right? We're 18, 19. So he's a record agent. One night, he says, slip down of the sorority, come up to the strip. They're auditioning somebody at the Whiskey and Go-Go. Okay, that sounds like fun. My day nights are dull. So I sneak out, and I had to doing trying to do my craft like I would buy a jean jacket and then I'd slash it and jewel it and I'd hand paint it with oil paints and I'd stud it and I'd bleach it and so I've got on a very cool outfit and naturally and we come into the whiskey which is a huge club but there's only like 20 record agents there with their girlfriends or not. And the rest of the club is dark. It's sort of surreal. There's a small stage, maybe about eight, nine inches high. Out comes this wild woman with incredible red hair, like this giant patch of hair, boas, a bottle of Southern Comfort, opens up her mouth, and it's like, Oh, my God. And it was Janis Joplin, her first time of 
performance to try and get a record contract. And do you know that my boyfriend didn't altogether get her? He, I kept <laughs> saying she is incredible. And he would be like, yeah, but what's with the hair in the bottle of Southern Comfort? But anyway, so we're right up by the stage. When she finishes, you know, everybody, everyone wants to talk to her. We're closest to her. So she starts talking to my boyfriend and she turns around and looks at me and I must look so conservative and, and, and so square little collegiate girl. And she says, hey man, your jacket is groovy. And I'm like ripping my jacket, take it, take it. And... My other story is we opened up a boutique, my friend and I, the one that was standing, Jim Morrison, um, in L.A., on Fairfax Avenue, across from Katz's Delicatessen, and where all celebrities went for their pastrami on rye. And one day, a white Rolls Royce pulls up, Sonny Bono gets out, Cher is in the car, she doesn't want that food. And she sees our little boutique, which we called. We thought this was the first rock and roll song ever recorded. I'm a hog for you, baby. So that's what we did this for. And painted it neon yellow. And we made all the clothing for the store. Everything was an A-line dress with all kinds of details. $10 a dress. Cher comes in. Looks around. We're too in awe to even speak. Goes back out the front door, and I, you know, well, of course, it figures, screams, get in here. And he and the chauffeur took every wrap with every dress and threw it into wow. the back of the roll. So that's how I got into being at the periphery always of the music industry. And I dressed Cher and Anne Margaret and Jefferson Airplane and Rod Stewart and Sly and the Family Stone and it goes on and on and on and then one day and I had moved up to San Francisco to follow the music scene and then one day I said uh, wait a minute Diane you're like 25 now the party is winding down don't age out like this you've got to get professional i had just enough money for an airline ticket i knew only one person in new york i bought the ticket i got on the plane and i came to the fashion capital of america sure did, did you miss uh did, did you catch up with the rock scene that was going on in new york at the time the or rock did you new york was like um it was sort of precursor to CBGB. So the sure. rock scene in New York, I remember putting my clothes into Granny Takes a Trip, which was a big rock scene as a retailer and um, all through the East Village. But I wanted more. I wanted to be a professional and get national recognition. I was very and ambitious on that. I had no family support, no foundation of money, and 
just wasn't sure how I was going to get there, but I knew where I wanted to go, which is probably half the battle. Sure. So, so let's bridge the gap. How do you, you know, go from from there? You know, not a lot of money in your pocket, not a lot of support, knowing one person in the fashion capital of the United States to you know, living on Fifth Avenue in the shadow of the Empire State Building it's and having house. I must say, I love my home. Oh, and there you go. It's a penthouse built. The foundation of the penthouse are definitely blue jeans. So um, I was starving to death, and you know, I had to get a couple of jobs, and I, nobody wanted to hire me as a designer because the interesting thing is. Whether you're in the music industry or you're in the fashion industry or you're an actor or actress, it is interesting that businesses that capitalize and run on talent totally distrust talent. You know, it's like holding a butterfly in your hand, hold it too tight, you're going to kill it. Too loose, it's going to fly away. So you could tell people you're talented. And they just zone out. They don't want to know about it. Well, did you go to FIT? Did you go to Parsons? Uh, no. Well, okay, thank you for your time. So um, I got a job at night as the worst cocktail waitress in history at Max's Kansas City. And then I met more celebrities like Andy Warhol and his whole factory crowd. And then during the daytime, I was a sales girl at Bloomingdale's, but not just a sales girl. The only job they had for me, this was so humiliating, was working in the old lady's girdle bullet broad department. Before Madonna made girdles and bullet bras fashionable. And all the old ladies in their molded rubber shoes, the saleswomen hated me, and I hated that department. But I used to wear, I used to read women's wear daily, every day, so that I at least felt like I was part of the fashion industry. And one day, I recognized the fashion coordinator of Bloomingdale's walking out purposely across the floor towards the department. Then she gives us a lecture how the department's not making money. Well, gee, I wonder why. And we have to change around the whole department. And none of the old women would volunteer. And I said, oh, and by the way, fashion designer, and I've got a little collection, and I'd love to show it to you. She's like, oh, my God, not another one. So she gives me an appointment like two months from Tuesday. But I used to... On my days off, or in between my two jobs, I would always go down to Orchard Street, buy closeouts of fabric, design them, quilt them, stitch them, embroider them. And I made a little collection of like seven or eight garments. So I come to meet her, and she said, well, so I can give you 15 minutes of my time today. Okay, okay, so I'll talk fast. I show her the collection. She goes, wait a minute. Picks up the phone, calls the vice president of Abraham and Strauss, which at the time was a big department store in Brooklyn, one subway stop away from Bloomingdale's. Both of them had a subway stop underneath their stores. And she said, I don't care what you're doing. Just get here 
right now. Get on train right now and come up to my office really quickly. And he did. And she said, I think I've just met the next great thing. Diane Gilman, meet, da-da-da-da. So they ordered $100,000 worth of my clothing, and I burst out in tears. And she, she was really looking at me like, you are the biggest pain in the butt in the world. Like, what is your problem, girl? And I said, I don't have the money to produce that. I sewed all of this myself. I bought short lots. I bought leftovers. I can't get this done. And she said, don't worry about it. Because Bloomingdale's at the time really did believe in talent. They funded me. They bought all the fabric for me. They paid all the sewing labor. They all the shipping. It was extraordinary. And it was a big hit. A big hit. And then they gave me all the windows of Bloomingdale's. And double trunk two Sundays in a row double trunk centerfold ads introducing me to the world and that was it I needed someone to believe in me and then the one thing that made it all a little bit easier is I understood the formula which is talent schmalet if you can make money for the guys that are going to back you and fund you, guess what? You're talented. So I understood that it was a commercial endeavor. I wasn't just an artist. I was a commercial artist. Like, yes. And so I got that instantly. And um, we went on to have some real hits, some really huge sellers. And at one point, Towards the end of the 80s, I remember in New York, which at the time had 19 department stores, Best in Company, Gimbals, Orbox. I mean, it had zillions of department stores. It was a era. Um, I had every window of every department store and every ad day after day in the New York Times. So what now at, at this point in time, you know, you're you're absolutely making it. What does your family say? And what do you say to your family? I never spoke to them again. I had wow. to make a choice between fashion and family. And they were so against my working and, and pursuing a career that they had actually discussed with my uncle putting me in a psychiatric hospital until I changed my mind. And so I had to make a decision. It was not a happy household to begin with. It was a pretty abusive household. Not pretty abusive. It was abusive. And so that's how strong my drive was. You know, designing was as necessary to me as eating and breathing is. If I likened it at one point to if you were a surfer who was just obsessed with waves and you caught the perfect waves 
there's probably no feeling like every time I designed and I wound up designing a million dollar seller, whether it was a jean or it was a top or I felt the way a surfer felt on that perfect wave. It It's a feeling like no other, but it completes you. And so it, it was something, it was a tough decision to make, but I never looked back. And, and, you know, they, of course, their, their vision for me was you marry a Jewish doctor. You don't study to be a doctor because that's not good for women. And by the way, don't act like you're too intelligent around men. They don't like that. It scares them. And um, that's it. And then you start having children and you're the wife of a Jewish doctor. And so I did go back home. Uh, 35, 40 years later when my father passed and somebody came up to my mother at the memorial service and said, you must be so proud of Diane. She's in every, her name is up on the wall of every department store in America. It was Diane Gilman collection. My mother looked at them and said, should have married a Jewish doctor like her cousin Nancy. That was, we weren't, we weren't seeing any movement there. There was no progress in attitude there. Uh-huh. I have to ask, was, was Cousin Nancy happy? Cousin Nancy uh, went to college, went to nursing school, met her husband, who was a pre-med student, Married him, was a receptionist in his office, and had seven children. Oh, my God. Oh, it was, if only you could be more like your cousin, Nancy. Uh, I don't know if Nancy was happy. I had no participation with family. On the other hand, for the entire family I have, I don't think one of them ever came to New York. My family was basically in Maine. So Portland, Maine, Bangor, Maine, and very different from me. Some some of them were like day laborers in a fish sorting factory. I mean, I, I definitely was unique for this family in every way. You know, I'm I'm thinking about the intro I read for you, and and I and I I pulled it from um, your publicist, and it, it says, you know, your greatest success came at age sixty. Yeah. Do you believe that? Do you believe your greatest success was at age sixty, or could it have been that day that you convinced that woman at at Bloomingdale's and and the guy from A and S to to take a chance on you? I uh, no, I think I think I think I was always a good sales girl. I got into, and I'll explain to you why I think 60 was so remarkable. I got, I got uh, an opportunity to wash, to introduce washable silk to America. And because I was good at painting and drawing, I used to paint and draw all my own prints and then turn them into silk screens for the silk. And the, it was a huge hit. And every, every woman, now was getting a job. It was now two adults working in a household where it had only been one previously. 
mid-80s to late-80s into early-90s. And that was definitely a success, too, except for one thing. The people that were backing me were cheating me. And I figured it out. And it was like, oh, come on. And so I thought, you know what? I'm making a good living, but I should be making a spectacular living. I'm going to sue them. Dumbest move in history. They had tons of money and they were pretty scary. And so this lawsuit is going on and on and I can't use my name legally. So one day I'm just about out of cash. Like the people benefiting the most, as usual, are the lawyers. And I get a phone call and I think, oh, my God, it's going to be another bill collector. I don't even want to take this call. No, no cell phones at the time. Nothing. It was 1994. Hello? Is this Diane Gilman? Who wants to know? This is Susan from QBC. And we tried to invite you to come on to television. I said, this is not funny. I mean, who is this? Who's playing this on? It's true. And I said, well, you're a little too late, Susan, because I'm in a lawsuit and I can't use my full name on a label. And I swear to God, she said to me, it's no problem. We'll just call you Diane. So, okay. All right. Sounds like. This baby is kind of interesting, so I go on air. They love washable silk. And I'm kind of going again, and eventually the lawsuits get settled, and I can use my last name, and there definitely were other people on the network and HSN who had been in the same legal battle I was in, just, you know, different name, different time. And... um I go on and on. I'm on from 1994 to, to we're going into 2004, 2005, 2006. I'm good, but I'm not fulfilled. I feel like this is not what I want to do. And in the meantime, I'm middle-aged. I can't believe it. I can't fit into anything I want to wear. But most of all, I can't fit into jeans. And I think to myself, this is the most unfair thing in the world. What are you talking about? What do you mean you can't wear a jean? I go everywhere trying on jeans. Nothing fits a middle-aged body. And here comes the giant light bulb moment of my life. I think, uh, wait a minute, you're a designer. Just go back down to Orchard Street, buy three yards of denim, take your body measurements. I had pattern makers at the time. I had sewing ladies at the time. I had my own, you know, sewing area. Make your own jean. So I make the jean and I immediately notice a huge improvement in my life. People are treating me like I'm 20 years younger, smarter, sexier, prettier, funnier. And I think, you know what? Can't be just me. There must be millions of women out there who are aged out of denim because denim 
was viewed only for the young. So I go to our new CEO, Mindy Grossman at HSN. She founded Polo Jeans with Ralph Lauren. So I figure, okay, she's going to understand jeans, the power of denim. And I said, give me an opportunity. I really believe this is going to work. And she said, you know, nobody believes you can sell fitted clothing on TV. It all has to be listen baggy. I said, give me one hour. So beware of what you ask for. She, um, she said, I'm not going to give you prime time. I can't afford that kind of mistake. So I got 5 a.m. on a February morning, 5 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, freezing out. Went on at 5 a.m., totally dark, and went on with a host who was a 4X and was crying because I kept saying, you've got to wear the clothing on air. I look like a total putz if you're not wearing the clothing. Like, that's how the customer is going to believe in it. I hate you. And boom, the camera's on. It's like, morning and we have something new to show you and we sold out 5,000 jeans in three minutes and had nothing left to sell for the rest of the hour and just was meteoric so answer to your question no I don't think I think meeting the fashion coordinator of Bloomingdale's was fate karma but I feel my light bulb moment was recognizing I had some kind of gadget in my brain where if I wanted it, a huge segment of American women, even if they didn't know they wanted it yet, the minute I showed it to them, they were going to want it. And I then realized that if I was passionate about something, I could sell ice cubes to Eskimos. I just had to love what I was selling, and I truly love my gene. And um, I became the number one fashion personality on teleretailing in America. And then knowing that QVC had an international business, I begged for an appointment with the CEO of what became our sister network, QVC. And I said, give me a chance. Put me in a country where I at least speak the language. And and just give me a chance. Just give me a couple of hours. So I went to the UK, to London. Huge. Immediately flew to number one. Went to Canada, Toronto, number one. Australia, number one. France, Paris, number one. Milan, Italy. Yeah, you got it. Number one. And um, Dusseldorf and then Munich, Germany, number one. It was a universal idea. Doesn't matter where you go, why you, whether you're eating ramen noodles or you're eating fish and chips or you're eating spaghetti, hormones are hormones. And for women, when your hormones change, your body changes, and that's where we are. We're there to catch you as you're falling and prop you back again and make you feel good about aging. I yeah, did it I mean, all you, you... from personal experience. Yeah, and that, that's where the, the greatest products come from, I think. You know, the, the product developer recognizes a need in the marketplace, usually because they 
can't find what they're looking for themselves, and then they go and create it because no one else has yet. So that's uh, I love I love that story. But you know, I'm curious, what can you share with us about the book? Too young to be old, how to stay vibrant, visible, and forever in blue jeans. Twenty five secrets from TV's Jean Queen. Here it is with a pile of blue jeans. The book is autobiographical. So the book is first and foremost about a woman making her way as a girl to a woman in a world that didn't have much use for me. They didn't know they had use for me. And so I, it was always hitting a barrier, hitting a barrier, hitting a barrier, and then finding the door or the window through that. So um, as I built, built my success through life, I just got used to always having to fight for it. And then when I just thought, a home free, 72 years old, this is great. I'm really rocking. I'm number one. I stay here forever. I like being on TV. I'm a real girly girl. Christmas Eve of 2017 got diagnosed with double breast cancer. And the prognosis was not good. So now I had to learn a totally other me. And that is a lot of what the book is about. Um, so Christmas Eve was unbelievable. And the next day, I called a friend of mine who was a, a senior editor of the Palm Beach Post. She's my co-author, Jan Tuckwood. And I said, um, well, interesting Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas. And I have stage three breast cancer. I said, but I want to make something out of it, Jan. I want, I think I'm going to take this differently from most women, which I think I did. And I'm not ever going to shed a tear about this. And I'm going to take a really workmanlike attitude. This is going to be my new career for the next year, saving my life. Will you shadow me? And we'll write a book about it. And she said, yeah. And so the book is not only a chronicle of my early and midlife, but it's also how I went through breast cancer, um, what I learned during breast cancer, and then how that set me up to be a far better person and a person who knows the rest of her life's purpose, which is making her generation of women feel better about themselves through information, through guidance, um, through support. So that's me. You know, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, thinking about all of the successes you've had in life, you know, from, you know, again, the, the, those early meetings, you know, Bloomingdale selling, you know, $100,000 before you could even produce any of it, you know, to the QVC and the HSN stuff is, could your greatest success be figuring out what your reason for living is, like what your mission in life is? I mean, is that worth more than everything you've sold? You know, that no one's ever asked me that question. I am, I would, I would say I'm incredibly intuitive. And I would say I can figure out what other people want far 
far faster than they can figure it out. So I'm always there first. But I would say that maybe my most successful trait is being afraid, but never letting it stop me. My whole life has been like taking chances and doing things with no support and that other people said, we are crazy to want that or that's never going to work. I don't listen to a lot of outside chatter. I listen to my heart. So if I had to say one of my, maybe my greatest trait, all the time that I wanted to design and designed, I always designed from a distance. I was never the customer and I was always uh, afraid I was going to, you know, get my feelings hurt and people were going to say, I hate your clothing, blah, 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 blah. Um, Just like anybody, just like an artist or a musician. But I never gave up and I never gave in. And if I truly believed in something, I fought for it. And so maybe, maybe that is who I am. Always always having a vision of where I need to go and who I need to touch. And once I designed the gene and I became this like overnight huge success at the age of 60 in a youth-obsessed industry, uh, which is unheard of, and I could start using my heart energy I built that audience of 750,000 women. And wow, I think if I had to say what was my greatest trait, it's making lemonade out of lemons. It's, you know, I took a situation with breast cancer that uh, my husband died of cancer. So my viewpoint of cancer was you die and it's horrible and the treatment is horrible. And I remember the night before the first chemotherapy saying to myself, okay, this is not a dress rehearsal. You cannot be in a bad mood. You cannot feel sorry for yourself. You cannot shed a tear. You're going to go in there and be the most popular patient. You're going to be the patient they love, the patient they can't wait to see. You're going to spread sunshine, the exact opposite of what the disease is. So, I would say another big trait of mine is being able to move on with time and be able to rediscover myself in the moment and don't just stay grounded like a lump of stone, which is what a lot of people do. They just want to sort of keep going back to their youth, but you're not young anymore. So what have you got to offer in the moment you're in? Well, they always say a rolling stone gathers no moss. And I had to throw a rolling stone reference in there just because we were talking rock and roll before. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm curious as we as we wrap up here, Diane, if you could go back in time and whisper anything into the younger Diane, you know, maybe it was, uh, you know, that co-ed sneaking out on Monday night to go to the whiskey or, you know, maybe it was, you know, um, you know, you as right before you're going to walk on stage at, at QVC HSN, what, what, if anything, would you tell your younger self? Stop worrying. I worried. I'm so, you know, Jewish girls, um, 
we're all worriers. That's what we do. We worry about everything all the time. That's just a trait. And I was always worried I was going to starve to death. I was always worried I was going to fail. I was always worried I was designing the wrong color of the year. I was, and when I look back at it all, I realized that was just wasted energy. That was just taking a negative part of me and expanding it. And then I thought, you know, maybe I see worrying as a fail-safe or uh, a way to um, to be able to not be responsible. But no, I just worried. I worried about everything, interestingly enough, until I got to breast cancer. And then I thought to myself, you can't afford to worry. You have to have 100% faith that you're going to respond to treatment and get better. And this is going to be an encapsulized part of your life. So really, two, I would say, two major things in my life shaped my life. The first was at 60 years old, becoming a success. Also in another youth obsessed industry, TV, that is not kind to aging. And I would say the second thing was learning invaluable life lessons by having a mortality-based disease. So here we are. Well, I imagine we we piqued the interest of more than a few listeners here. So Diana, if people wanted to get in touch with you or follow you on social media, do you have uh, any way for them to get in touch with you? Well, of course I do. So the name of my podcast, the title of my podcast is the title of my second book too young to be old. And all that means is aging, we can bypass the numbers. As long as your head stays young and current, you will always be too young to be old. And you can find me. I have my own YouTube channel. Oh, yes, I do. It's 78 years old. And it is thedianegilman.com. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on TikTok. And I do uh, a bi-weekly, two-a-week uh, podcast on YouTube, The Diane Gilman, Too Young to Be Old, this podcast, and I'm loving it. So much- all right. I-, I will put links to all of that in our show notes so people can find you easily. And I'm going to watch you on TikTok. I am. Uh, I haven't figured that one out yet, but uh, my kids love it. So there's oh, got to be something. I love it. I listen to I listen to all my favorite music artists from the 60s, 70s, 80s on TikTok. It's fabulous. And I feel right. modern. And I feel like, oh, yeah, you know, no problem. I watch, I get TikTok. So believe me, if I get TikTok, so will you. All right. So now I have to ask, who is your favorite artist from the 60s, 70s, or 80s? If you had to pick one, who is it? Female. I would choose Linda Ronstadt for her voice. Just beautiful voice. I remember seeing her at the Troubadour one night singing Blue Bayou and I was blown away. And I would have to say for my personality, Mick Jagger Bayou and I was blown away. And I would have to say for me, um, I was one of those angry teenagers, you know, rebellious. And that, that it, I remember hearing the first song 
by the Rolling Stones in 1963. And I was driving my little VW Bug up Sunset Boulevard. And that song came on and I put on the brakes. I swear to you, my friend was in the car with me. My friend and I got out of the car, turned the radio up high in broad daylight, and we danced. We were dancing. <laughs> what was the song? Um, hey, get off of my cloud. Oh, sure. Yeah. But I, I loved, I think Sympathy for the Devil was my favorite. And what an energy he had. And, you know, then years later, I used his makeup artist. I used Mick Jagger and Keith Richards' makeup artist in London. And she went on four tours with them to do nothing. She didn't do the makeup. She filled in their deep wrinkles. That's all she <laughs> did on tour. Uh, I mean, I've got a zillion stories to tell, but I realize we have a time limit. <laughs> well, no, but that's... That's a that's a good one to end on. I love it. I love the vanity of rock and roll. Totally. I loved uh, getting to know you and uncorking your story. So as as yeah. always, I say thank you for uh, stopping by uncorking a story and letting me uncork yours. Yeah, this was so much fun. After all, talking about me, what could be more fun for me? So. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.